Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Frank Rose on the sea we swim in. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the psychology or humor category for episode number 168 with John V. Petrocelli on the life-changing science of detecting bullshit. This is John Petrocelli, author of The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Frank Rose is faculty director of Columbia University's Strategic Storytelling Seminar, head of the Digital Dozen Awards program at Columbia's pioneering digital storytelling lab, and author of a landmark book on tech and narrative called The Art of Immersion. His newest chronicle is another good one. It's called The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. Frank, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Very good. Very good. How are you, Trey? Doing great, thank you. Why is your time at Columbia, beginning in 2014, important for writing this book? Well, what I what happened in 2014 uh, at Columbia was I started doing this executive education program, which uh, eventually evolved into uh, what's now called strategic storytelling. It's a um, uh, executive course means it's not for students; it's for typically mid-career, senior-level executives, uh, you know, independent professionals, that sort of thing. And the idea was narrative thinking. That was what was really behind it. The idea that you know, as with design thinking, where people who are not professional designers sort of take the tools of professional designers and use them. That's sort of what is happening with stories right now, I think. Uh, you know, it, it used to be uh, back in the uh, 20th century, uh, storytelling was pretty much a professional calling, or at least that's what people considered it to be. Now, of course, everybody is a storyteller. And, uh, you know, especially people in business, um, people in marketing, uh, you know, we get uh, those, we get people at nonprofits, uh, professionals, we get, uh, you know, uh, nonprofits like Doctors Without Borders and, uh, and the Red Cross and so forth. We get entrepreneurs. Uh, and as I was teaching this class over the, um, you know, past few years, I, you know, sort of naturally began to accumulate a lot of stuff, a lot of ideas, a, a lot of, um, you know, ideas that I hadn't really had before. And so I felt like uh, this would be uh, a good thing to do with them. You know, basically put them in a book like this, uh, which is what I've done. So just to clarify, I know you just mentioned narrative thinking there, but considering that the start of the jacket flap, the front jacket flap says, this is a practical guide to narrative thinking and why it matters in a world defined by data. What is narrative thinking? So narrative thinking is, uh, as I said, it's sort of an uh, analogous to design thinking. But, uh, you know, what it means is uh, thinking in terms of stories. We, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the thinking behind the title, The Sea We Swim In, um, is uh, it comes from this Jerome Bruner quote. Bruner, of course, being one of the leading psychologists of the 20th century, um, uh, a person who was, uh, you know, one of the leaders of the revolution in the field against behaviorism in the 50s, and then 
uh, uh, a leader in the development of cognitive psychology. And um, the idea behind narrative thinking is we need to think in terms of stories. We tend to naturally do that anyway, but we also have for a very long time tended to, you know, sort of denigrate that. You know, it's not something that was, uh, well, it was something that was considered um, frivolous for for years and years by psychologists and, and so forth. People were uh, sort of, you know, reluctant to study it. Everybody focuses on logic and reasoning and reason. And uh, the perhaps unfortunate truth is we're not really logical creatures. We think in terms of story. And what Bruner said uh, in the mid eighties was exactly that, uh, that there are two forms of, of uh, two modes of thinking. Uh, you know, one is logic and the other is stories. And that's what I really mean by narrative thinking. Um, you know, being aware of the sea we swim in, being aware that we are basically storytelling creatures above all. Speaking of those who have contributed to this field of study, who is Melanie Green and how did some research that she led while a grad student at Ohio State in the late 90s help us better understand the value of narrative? Sure. Uh, she was a, well, she is a, at this point a professor at um, uh, the University of Buffalo, the uh, State University of New York in Buffalo. And at the, uh, in the mid 90s, she was a grad student at Ohio State. And um, Ohio State has actually had a, sort of a long history of, uh, of really interesting research in this field. Uh, but she came up with a really fascinating study that uh, has been cited. Um, uh, the paper that she wrote has been cited a, a great deal since. Um, <clears throat> she took a story, uh, a, a, a very dramatic story of a little girl being knifed to death by a psychiatric patient um, in a shopping center. <clears throat> and she used that as the, as the basis of this study. And what she wanted to find was basically two things. Uh, the first was, what difference would it make if uh, people were given a story like this and told it was true or told it was fiction? And secondly, um, what difference, if any, would it make uh, if people were more or less immersed in the story? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, in particular, what difference would it make in terms of their attitudes towards, you know, issues that were brought up in this in the story, such as, you know, should psychiatric patients be let out on leave? And, uh, and in order to do that, she had to, you know, come up with a way to quantify immersion, which nobody had ever done before. <clears throat> so she came up with a list of questions and, a, you know, seven point um, uh, scale of, uh, of answering them from, you know, um, very little to very much. And, uh, and so she managed to quantify this and she had people read the story. There were two different versions of the story. One, in one, uh, the story was formatted as a newspaper article. And in another, the story was formatted as a, um, as a short story in a literary magazine. So in other words, fiction. And, and what she found was that, yes, people who were more immersed in the story tended to um, to, to be more focused on 
issues like, uh, say, psychiatric patients out on leave and, you know, violence in shopping centers or in America in general. And uh, but the other question, which was, uh, you know, uh, does it matter if people are told it's true or not true? Uh, she found it didn't matter at all. That's a little bit surprising. Did that surprise you too? It did surprise me, and I think it surprised her. But, um, uh, you know, on uh, <laughs> on second thought, maybe not so much. <laughs> uh, you know, we, uh, we, we, we tend to think that we are, uh, and this gets into a, to another issue, but we tend to think that we're rational creatures and that, you know, we wouldn't be, uh, you know, that, that we would pay more attention and give more credence to something that was, um, we were told was fact rather than fiction. Um, but uh, uh, that turns out time and again not to be the case. Frank, early on you write, quote, often the most effective stories don't even register as stories. They're just the way things are. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I grew up in Virginia and um, there's a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of focus on, on uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, racial issues and so forth. Um, you know, my, my mother's family was in Virginia from the 17th century. They, of course, they owned slaves um, uh, and they fought for the Confederacy. And, uh, you know, that was just sort of my background. Uh, the thing that, you know, sort of struck me after a while was that all of these things that I just sort of taken for granted, like, you know, the statue of the Confederate soldier on the courthouse lawn, um, the statues in Richmond and Monument Avenue of Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart and Stonewall Jackson, uh, you know, um, all of those things I eventually came to realize were, uh, you know, part of a, a long-standing and remarkably successful effort to rewrite the history of the Civil War. And this is, you know, of course, the mythology of the lost cause. And, you know, the lost cause was, um, it, you know, it was, it was this, I, this sort of mythical idea of the old South as this land of chivalry and crinolines. Uh, and slavery was just kind of, um, you know, like uh, it didn't really matter. And, uh, you know, the Civil War wasn't fought over that anyway. And, you know, most people were really good to their slaves and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, th there, there were sort of, I think the high watermark for this mythology came in the 1930s when you had the release of Gone with the Wind, you know, hugely popular first as a book and then as a movie. And uh, and and then Douglas Southall's Freeman's multi-volume biography, worshipful biography of Robert E. Lee. Uh, Freeman lived in Richmond, and uh, you know, in the West End, and was said to uh, you know salute the statue of uh, of Lee every time he drove into work, which would have been pretty much every day. So, you know, what what I came to realize was that. All of these things were, you know, they didn't get there by accident uh, and they didn't get there solely out of, you know, reverence for um, history. They got there out of an effort to rewrite history. And, uh, you know, again, it comes back to the issue of, uh, you know, <laughs> like, is something true or is it false and does it matter? You know, do we really care? 
So, yeah, that's that's what I was thinking about there. This book is in three parts. Part two is the elements of the story. And in these pages, you break down the nine important parts of a story. The biggest components are the author, the journey, and the audience, with six, let's call them subsets, being character, world, detail, voice, platform, and immersion. Why is Warby Parker's story such an inspiring one when discussing the author? Well, you know, it's a it's a really great example, I think, of of something that sort of uh, an idea that came to the fore around the time that Warby Parker was started, which is to say around 2010, uh, 2011. And, uh, you know, this is the idea that people want to know. Uh, people want to know about their uh, the companies that they buy from. They and the, they want to know about not just the products themselves, but who's behind the products. And Warby Parker had a had a great story. It was uh, you know of course founded by by four guys at Wharton who you know after after one of them lost his glasses in an airport in in Thailand, his seven hundred dollar you know pair of Prada glasses, and uh, couldn't afford to replace them. And this ultimately led these guys to, uh, you know, start a company that went direct to the consumer uh, and, uh, and, you know, bypassed the middleman. And most importantly, uh, uh, a big part of the Warby Parker story became their competition, which is this Italian company called Luxottica, which had managed to pretty much buy up the entire eyeglasses business from, you know, both vertically and horizontally. You know, they they controlled all of the major designer labels. They controlled just about every other brand. Uh, they controlled the outlets. Uh, they owned the outlets where they were. Uh, these things were sold, um, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, they could charge just about anything they wanted to. So Warby Parker goes into into business. Uh, you know, selling these things for a hundred dollars, and 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 you know, selling them online. Uh, with the um, promise that they would send you a bunch to try on and you would send back the, um, send them all back and the ones you liked, they would um, you know uh, fill the prescription and send it on to you. So uh, you know this, this is I mean the, the value proposition was great, but the story I think really caught people's attention and especially it got a lot of attention in you know business magazines and in uh, and in particular sort of entrepreneurially focused magazines like Fast Company and Inc and so forth and um, it, it just happened to come along at a time when as I say people people started to have a real interest in uh, in the people behind their their company. And, uh, you know, there was one thing that they did in particular that I just thought was brilliant. It was very early on. They didn't have money for advertising. Uh, you know, they were, they were pretty seriously undercapitalized at first. So what they did was they bought an old school bus and they tore out all the insides and uh, retrofitted it as a sort of combination eyeglasses store and library. And early on, they had a, a they they made a connection between reading and reading books in particular and eyeglasses. And uh, and then they sent this bus on the road. They took like three or four employees, uh, and uh, you know one of them was the driver, and the other three were 
were, uh, you know, essentially sort of, you know, sales and marketing uh, people. And they drove to major cities across the country. I think their first stop was Nashville. They're headquartered in lower Manhattan, by the way. And, uh, and everywhere they, they went, they stopped and uh, they interviewed uh, fans. And Warby Parker was already at that point the kind of company that, that had fans uh, as opposed to merely customers. And then they, you know, they had this blog, so they would take photographs of everybody uh, that they interviewed, and they would write up the interview, and they would post it in the blog. And it just became this sort of, um, you know, spiraling uh, um, a marketing effort that really didn't feel like a marketing effort at all. It just felt like, you know, this this outfit getting in touch with with their fans and. I just thought that was brilliant. Uh, so, you know, it's one of the, um, it, it, the, the reason it's there is it's because, uh, you know, this is a company that knows itself, knows who it is, knows what it is, and, uh, and knows how to present that. So I think that's a really important thing. And I think that's one of the earliest examples of utilizing audience immersion. Why has audience immersion become so prevalent in storytelling over the last 5, 10, 15 years? Well, that was sort of the subject of my last book, which was called The Art of Immersion, and which came out 10 years ago. Uh, I think what's happening is that people really want... um, uh, obviously people want to be immersed in things and it's not just stories. Uh, you know, the, there's this, um, the example of Yayoi Kusama, the Japanese artist who, uh, back in, I think it was maybe 2013 or so, uh, had a exhibit in uh, a gallery in Chelsea in New York. And, uh, one of the things in her exhibit was this um, uh, mirrored infinity room. And, you know, all it really was was a small room, you know, maybe about 10 feet square, that uh, was dark and had a lot of mirrors and, uh, and a lot of sort of hanging colored lights. And uh, you would go in there and you actually got all of 45 seconds in the room. That was all you could stay. Uh, so... Um, nonetheless, people lined up around the block, uh, you know, two or three blocks down the street for this, even in the rain, and, uh, you know, all to spend 45 seconds in a room that promised infinity. And it was, uh, you know, it was obviously kind of a selfie opportunity, but beyond that, it was, it was something that, uh, you know, a, a kind of art that people could really experience directly. You know, what I feel like is we want um, art without a frame. We want, um, uh, you know, uh, stories that we can leap into. We want, uh, you know, to, to be able to imagine ourselves in all kinds of different situations, which is, of course, what stories are all about anyway. And, um, uh, you know, so there, there are many different examples. I mean, theater uh, you know, Punch Drunk, this outfit in London has had this uh, uh, um, play that ran for um, 10 years before the pandemic hit with no advertising, sold out every night. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thing was there's no proscenium arts. 
So you have theater without a proscenium arts. Instead, uh, what they had there, this is Sleep No More, of course, uh, what they had there was a huge loft building that you could explore, uh, you know, room after room after room. You could open drawers, you could pull out papers, you could do all kinds of things like this. And every once in a while, you'd find some actors who happened to be passing by, and you could follow them and see what they were doing. And, and you know, then you could follow them some more, or you could find more rooms to explore or whatever you like. So, you know, one thing that happened was you never had the same experience twice. So, you know, <laughs> the upshot of that was lots of people came twice, two, three times. And uh, um, it's just a, another example of this, you know, ability to, uh, you know, leap into uh, a story or a sort of a, you know, basically an alternate reality. Well, what you're describing is a part of the experience economy, which has started to overtake the longstanding service economy over the last couple of decades. But it doesn't take something that outlandish to be a part of the experience economy. For instance, while we may consider our local coffee shop a part of the service economy, why is the modern hipster-run coffee shop where I can decide between a single-cup hand-brewed coffee and a Japanese iced coffee less of an example of service economy and more about that experience economy, Frank? Well, because it's really about performing. And, uh, you know, this, of course, this idea of the experience economy is uh, is an idea that was, um, you know, first laid out in the late 90s um, in a book of that title, The Experience Economy, by uh, Joe Pine and his co-author. Uh, and um, the, you know, the, the, the point there was that uh, you know, we've obviously we've sort of moved past the manufacturing economy in the U.S. and, you know, most of Western Europe as well. Uh, we've moved past that into uh, a service economy. But their point, and this is 20 years ago, was that we're moving past the service economy in, into a, a state where the, the value added um, is coming from creating an experience. And sometimes it's an experience you pay for directly as, you know, when you go to say Disneyland or something like that. Um, and sometimes it's an experience that you pay for indirectly, which is why, a, you know, a, a latte at Starbucks or, or another place like that can cost four or five dollars, um, uh, you know, rather than just going to Dunkin' Donuts. So, uh, you know, it's the whole thing is, I think, was really correctly identified by them as a as a major next step. And, uh, you know, proof of that, I think, is that, you know, their book, which did not get a huge amount of attention when attention when it was first published, in, excuse me, in 1999, has uh, been brought out now for for um, two subsequent editions, the third edition, uh, uh, revised edition just came out about a year or two ago. And, uh, you know, I just found it to be a really smart idea and also, you know, very nicely uh, laid up. How has the attention economy, which is even more important in this age of information, where at times the amount of info is overwhelming, affected storytelling? Well, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly an interesting question. I think the attention economy is... Uh, uh, you know, of course, the idea that, as you say, we're overwhelmed by information and that, uh, 
you know, in, in a situation like that, the scarce thing becomes not information, which is what was historically always scarce. We never had enough of it. Uh, but, um, but our attention, which is to say the thing that information consumes. So, uh, you know, the idea is that, you know, there's a, there's a surfeit of information, there's a paucity of attention, and uh, there's just not enough of it to go around. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, kind of resonated in a couple of different ways, I think. Uh, you know, a great deal has been made of the idea that we are, uh, you know, that, that our attention span has shrunk to, uh, you know, the, the, the size of a pen. And, uh, you know, so something like TikTok, for example, um, or, or YouTube before that. And, um, and to a certain extent, that's true. Um, but I have a friend in, in the UK, Matt Locke, who uh, is a former uh, head of new media at the BBC and now runs a consultancy there called Story Things. And he points out quite correctly, I think, that uh, the whole idea of, of, of our attention span and formats that are designed to, uh, you know, basically to format our attention, um, uh, you know, has expanded in both directions. Yes, it's gotten, um, you know, like incredibly small in the case of something like TikTok, but it's also gotten at the same time incredibly long. You know, we used to be, um, you know, sort of forced into uh, attention patterns of half an hour or an hour, you know, watching TV and that sort of thing. Uh, now it can be as short as, you know, a few seconds, uh, or it can be as long as, as you know, uh, many, many hours in a show on Netflix, for example. Uh, you know, that the idea that we would, um, you know, at the same time that we are sort of minimalizing our attention span, we're also maximizing it, you know, at, at the same time, we are devoting ourselves to, um, to shows that are, you know, very immersive and very, uh, you know, extremely well done, uh, that unfold over, you know, a period of 10, 12, you know, hours, and that's just for one season. It's interesting that you point out how ratings have become so much less relevant in the digital age. So, which metrics matter now? Hmm. That's a very good question. I think, um, you know, the, the, the metrics that's often used or most often used in the web, I think is, is really deceiving. Um, you know, the, the idea of, uh, of monthly average users or, um, you know, page views, um, for a media site, um, you know, it makes no distinction, uh, you know, page views makes no distinction between somebody who stays for, uh, you know, five seconds and somebody who stays for 15 or 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, the so the 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 bounce rate is um, is is really important. And there are people who are, uh, you know, trying to correct this, uh, you know, who are who are, you know, trying to come up with measurements that, that, you know, much more accurately 
um, reflect the amount of attention that we devote to something. And that's, I think, you know, what, what really matters. This is actually a side note in this book, but I love the point you made here. So I'm going to have you expand on this. Why does it make you cringe to hear a media person who refers to an audience as eyeballs? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I did sort of have fun with that. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, uh, you know, it's the kind of phrase that is, um, is, is, what's, what's the word? Um, it's, sort of deliberately superficial, I think. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's casual in a way that, uh, you know, is, I think, sort of designed to, to make you feel like an expert, um, you know, even as you're denigrating the, uh, the, the thing that you're an expert about, which is people's attention. And uh, so, you know, it, it just occurred to me, like, what is an eyeball anyway? And, uh, you know, why... Uh, why, why does why does that matter, um, and why does that phrase bother me so much? And as I looked into it, and I ended up um, calling my um, eye doctor to uh, make sure I was correct here. Um, <laughs> but as I looked into it, I you know what I realized was that you know the eyeball is just like the surface thing. Um, you know, it's it's you know it's what we see on other people. It's what we see with ourselves. But the whole thing of vision happens in the brain. It's much, much too complicated for, uh, you know, anything in the eyeball to handle. And um, so I just felt like, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, very almost cynical sur surface treatment of the people that are, you know, watching or reading your, your, um, your programming uh, is just really a bad idea and that uh, it it sort of reflects uh, the surface nature of the eyeball itself. So I felt like that was kind of an interesting uh, correlation there. It's oversimplifying the audience and probably taking them for granted as well. If that's all yeah. you see in your prospective users. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, whereas something like Warby Parker sending out a school bus to drive around the country and uh, and and actually meet their 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 fans, their their users, their customers, uh, you know, that's why I think that's so brilliant. You know, they're not relying on metrics. They're not relying on you know numbers that come in uh, off a you know on a computer printout. Um, they're actually going out and talking to people and finding out what they care about. A good story is a journey. Why is this even true with shorter stories? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, one thing I like to do in my um, Columbia program is, is, is show a couple of, uh, you know, really interesting 30-second or 60-second spots and, and pull them apart and analyze them. One reason, of course, is you can't really do that on a, you know, with an with a hour-long show. But the other reason is, I'm I'm I love the uh, the sort of compactness of some of these uh, ads. I mean, there's one that I write about here, uh, a Super Bowl ad for Budweiser um, that is about the uh, ranch that Budweiser maintains in the Missouri countryside, um, where they grow and raise um, these uh, these horses that they use in their parades and have been using in parades ever since the repeal of prohibition, and uh, and so this is like a 
basically a fictional story set in set in this ranch with this handsome young rancher and you see him with a foal that's just been born and you know at one point the foal gets sick and he sleeps in the stall with it and and you see them you know uh, like he's training the the horse as it grows up uh and they develop this real bond that you can you can you know feel and then the you know the Budweiser truck drives up. The you know the truck that's going to take the horse away and, uh, and 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 put it in the parade, and uh, you know you can see the look on his face when 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 he sees this truck sort of off in the distance. And of course he's been expecting this anyway, uh, but still. And so they take the horse away and uh, and cut to his kitchen table. Three years later, uh, he's reading a newspaper and. Uh, and it, it, um, there's an article about a Budweiser parade in Chicago uh, in, in a couple of days. So he takes his pickup, he drives up to Chicago, he sees the parade, he has a great time. Uh, and, uh, and then as he's uh, getting ready to drive off, he looks in his rearview mirror and he sees his horse, uh, which has been unshackled, uh, bolting for him. And he gets out of the horse and they're he gets out of the pickup and he and the horse are reunited and it's just like a you know uh, uh, an incredible moment and you know this is all done in with no words in in 60 seconds and i just think that kind of economy of storytelling is completely fascinating the idea that you can you know that that you can get this much detail um and uh and, and this much emotion into a uh, a, a 60 second story um, that, as I say, there's no dialogue. The only words that are spoken is there's a Stevie Nicks song on in the, um, in the background, um, which of course kind of amps up the emotion factor as well. Uh, you know, I, I feel like there's a, there's a great deal we can learn from that. And, uh, um, you know, um, in a, in a way, it's like a it's like a short story by Cortazar or, or you know one of the Latin American one of the Argentinian uh, um, short story writers of the 30s and 40s that you know sometimes they take up less than a page, um, and uh, uh, I just love that. I think it's uh, it's it, it says so much about what you can do with a story. By the same token, with that Super Bowl ad, because as you were describing it in the book, I recalled it pretty clearly, even though I haven't seen that commercial in half a decade. Why is that <laughs> Super Bowl ad good for helping to understand that often it takes more than just a good story to help out with product sales, too? Right. Well, you know, story is just part of it. And at this point, Anheuser Bush, the uh, company, had been. Uh, taken over uh, by this uh, uh, big beer conglomerate and very, very bottom line focused. And um, the head of marketing there uh, announced after a couple of years and, and another uh, story ad that was rather similar that it wasn't helping beer sales and they weren't going to run um, stories like that anymore. So they ran different kinds of ads um, that weren't story based and, um, and they were... Uh, um, not able to, uh, um, you know, increase their sales either. And, uh, you know, I went to, um, I, I went to one of the major sources of, uh, of information about beer sales. And, uh, you know, I got their figures, um, you know, for the industry in general and Budweiser and Bud Light in particular. 
And, you know, it's just there's a there's a uh, a major trend that has been true for at least 10 or 12 years, which is people just aren't buying as much Bud and Bud Light as they used to. And, uh, you know, the reason for that, I think, is because, uh, um, you know, tastes are changing. And what's going up is sales of uh, imports and craft beers. And, uh, you know, Bud Light is still the best-selling beer in the U.S., but it is, um, you know, I don't recall the exact figures, but it's, I think, down by about a third of what its sales were uh, maybe 12 years ago. And, uh, you know, so finally what AB InBev did um, was they started buying up um, craft beers, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was uh, which was perhaps a smarter thing to do uh, than, uh, um, you know, the, the um, ads were like, you know, people love to watch the ads, but they 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 still didn't want the beer, um, so there wasn't much you could do there. It wasn't a storytelling problem; it was really a product problem. You also discuss the effectiveness or lack thereof of various storytelling formats, things like narrative arc, the inverted pyramid, the hero's journey, and also nonlinear narratives with Pulp Fiction perhaps being the most famous example of that. And while discussing nonlinear narratives, Frank, you write that, quote, very few stories are truly nonlinear. You just have to locate their axis of linearity. If it's not time, it will be something else. What do you mean here? Right. Um, Yeah, that was um, when I when I realized that I I kind of uh, um, I considered it kind of a signal moment in, in the in the development of this book. Actually. It's the most profound thing that I read in this book, if I'm being completely honest with you. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so um, anyway, yeah, the, um, uh, you know, so, so we're probably all um, familiar with Pulp Fiction, at least with the idea of it. Hopefully, um, most of us have seen it. Um, it's a terrific movie. Um, but what happened in the aftermath, and this came out, I believe, in 1994, was Hollywood agents and studio execs got completely flooded with, um, uh, you know, screenplays that were uh, told out of order. And, um, th- you know, almost invariably, uh, they were complete failures. Nobody wanted them. Nobody even wanted to look at them. And the reason was because they just sort of like randomly, you know, threw things up in the air and, uh, and, and uh, you know, called it a story, uh, you know, however it landed. And um, what you realize with, with something like Pulp Fiction is that um, there's actually a very, uh, a very, very tight structure there. Uh, and there's a reason it's such an effective movie. Um, and that reason has to do ultimately with the nature of that structure um, and, uh, and, and, you know, how it's done and what it represents. Um, so in this case, uh, what was happening was, um, uh, you know, th- there, were, there were actually three stories in one. Uh, in this movie, and they were told out of order. Um, and uh, it, it was actually, a, when you diagrammed it, it was actually fairly simple what the order was, um, but uh, uh, it still 
you know, it kind of dazzled the mind um, at, you know, at the same time. And, uh, you know, what, what, um, what the secret of the movie really was that instead of a, of a temporal order, instead of being ordered by time, um, there was a, a kind of a morality that was imposed on the movie by the structure. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, because of the way, uh, the, because of the order that things were presented in, you realized that uh, even if only subliminally, that the people who were, uh, you know, who did bad things um, were punished, they died. And the people who, you know, sort of uh, um, were, were good in some fundamental way, even if it was a hitman, uh, were rewarded. And, uh, you know, I feel like, I, certainly in my case, I hadn't really, you know, fully understood that until I began to really, really look into the movie and watch it again a couple of times and so forth. But, but that's, I think, what the secret of nonlinear storytelling is, is there has to be some spine there. You know, it's not random. Uh, it, it's there's nothing random about it at all. Um, it's uh, um, it's it's very um, you know very very tightly done, and um, uh, done with a purpose, um, which is not just to be cool, uh, which is of course not a purpose at all. Very much a controlled chaos. How has yeah. digital technology changed our idea of a setting? or the world within a story being told? Uh, you know, it's kind of expanded the possibilities, I think. And it's also created a sense of open-endedness and, uh, you know, in which a story can go on forever. And I think the ultimate example of that right now is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, which really does seem like it's going to go on forever. Uh, and then you had the Star Wars expanded universe before that. Um, but, uh, but when you think about it, there have always been examples of this. Uh, you know, the, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, which was first published in the 1950s, um, you know, following, of course, The Hobbit, which was published in, in the late 30s. Uh, and, and even more of, even a better example, um, Sherlock Holmes you know, which were dated from the turn of the century and were so, these stories were so immersive and people got so caught up in them that they, they've created this, you know, fandom that was extremely demanding. Like, for example, when Arthur Conan Doyle, the author, tried to kill off Sherlock Holmes, they demanded that he bring him back. And, uh, you know, Conan Doyle sort of felt like this was his junk, um, you know, writing project and he was very proud of his, historical, uh, you know, books, um, which, of course, nobody remembers today at all. Um, but uh, eventually, he had no choice but to bring them back. And uh, so I think what digital technology has done is really, uh, you know, take this phenomenon uh, and spread it, you know, made it much more widespread, because now it can really kind of be applied to anything, any kind of story, uh, entertainment story, at least. Uh, that um, uh, that really gets people's attention, and uh, you know there are there are you know things that you can do, but basically it comes down to this question of world building, 
And that has to do with how we process stories in the brain in the first place, I think, which um, goes back to earlier in the book, uh, you know, where I talk about some of these um, um, neuroscience and cognitive psychology experiments. And there's a, a, you know, the overarching feeling among cognitive scientists these days is that we experience stories by imaginatively projecting ourselves into them. And if you've ever sat in a movie theater and watched a horror movie, you, you know, know exactly what I mean, right? You realize that you're just sitting in a seat. There's other people around you. Nothing, uh, you know, terrible is going to happen, but you're still scared out of your wits. And the, um, uh, uh, this sort of, uh, you know, open-ended um, uh, narrative world that is being created now is I think it's a it's a very important uh, uh, development because one thing that digital technology is doing I think in general in terms of media is making it making obvious what people always wanted to do in the first place like fan fiction you know which is an example of hurling yourself into a narrative world and sort of making it over to be your own. You know, there's been fan fiction for many decades, if not centuries. And, you know, certainly starting with uh, with Sherlock Holmes, if not well before that. And, uh, you know, but only with digital has it become obvious um, and something that you can't avoid. So I feel like it's a very important development. It certainly has to do with the, um, you know, with the, the quest for immersion, the, the idea that you want to immerse yourself in a story. Um, and uh, in doing that, you want to make it your own. Uh, and that means that the author, you know, has to take this into account. What is the reality effect and just how realistic does it have to be? Hmm. Yeah, the reality effect is is basically the idea that uh, you know that what you're watching or what you're reading, uh, you know, really uh, seems real. Uh, you know, it it, it there's a, so much uh, detail and and it's it rings so true that um, you are, you know, you 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 feel that you are there, um, and. Um, there are, you know, there, like any, you know, literary or, or you know, it doesn't have to involve uh, books, certainly. It can involve, uh, you know, movies, TV shows, any kind of story like that. Um, uh, you know, it's something that is, uh, goes in, and, it represents things that go in and out of fashion. Um, and, um, uh, but, the, the sense that, uh, you know, the sense that you're there is really the essence of it. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, it's something that George Lucas tapped into with the very first Star Wars movie. Um, you know, the the idea that there is, uh, you know, that there's sort of this used future. I think that's the phrase that has been used, um, you know, you're most science fiction movies uh, prior to that at least were uh, you know everything was sort of pristine and 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 beautiful um, or at least clean and Lucas realized that that wouldn't that wasn't the way it would be at all 
you know, that we would be, um, you know, in fact, in this sort of, uh, you know, series of kind of grungy planets and, and with grungy bars and, and uh, you know, planes that uh, could barely make it in the air. And uh, so I think that, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's what we're really talking about here. And it's the idea that you're creating a, you know, an effect of reality that, of course, is not really there. So voice is pretty self-explanatory. It's how you are telling the story. It can involve a narrator. It can involve something completely different. Is there a good way to find the proper voice for a story, Frank? You know, I think it comes down to what feels authentic. I think it's very, um, very much tied to authenticity. And, uh, you know, as a, as a writer in, in my career before I, uh, you know, started at Columbia was primarily as a journalist. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody who's, who's tried to write seriously at all realizes that you have to find your voice. And, and as an individual, as a writer, you know, this can take years sometimes. Uh, but it's not just writers and it's not just individuals, you know, companies have uh, an appropriate voice. Um, any kind of organization does, whether it's for profit or not, um, uh, you know, any kind of organization has a, a way that it's appropriate to speak and other ways that it's not. And they vary according to the personality of the, of the organization and the people leading them. Uh, and, you know, what feels write for, uh, you know, one person like, um, you know, say Richard Branson and Virgin uh, would feel, uh, you know, completely wrong and false for uh, somebody else. There are five different types of platforms to tell a story from. Exchanges, advertising platforms, transaction systems, technology platforms, and narrative platforms. Why is the narrative platform unique from the other four? Uh, well, that's a good question. So uh, platforms, uh, of course, have been uh, getting a lot of attention in uh, business and economic circles over the last um, 15, 20 years, because the most successful uh, companies these days are essentially platform companies. And what that means in the classic definition, I use the term classic, uh, uh, you know, advisedly, it's, this all dates from the early 2000s. Um, but but uh, you know what this means is um, a platform is is a is a place you know whether online or or, or whatever um, that connects two different two or more different groups of people different kinds of people um, you know a, a really good example would be Airbnb right um, people who have uh, you know extra room in their apartment or whatever and people who want a place to stay um, and uh, um, you know the same with uh, uber and lyft um, there's uh, uh, you know um, any number of uh, of companies like this and on the whole um, at least the ones that you hear about have been um, incredibly successful what i realized um uh, as I was writing this book, though, that is that there was a there's something that I call a narrative platform, which is fundamentally different from that. And um, by platform in this sense, what I mean is, uh, you know, any sort of platform is built on top of, of other things that already exist, um, you know, in particular in the digital world, other technologies, um, you know, 
it's 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 all part of the stack, right? And so, you know, a narrative platform can, you know, it, uh, stories can be told over TV, uh, they can be told in movie theaters, they can be told on Twitter, they can be told um, on, on Facebook, uh, and any combination of, of this. And, you know, the example I use in the book is The Walking Dead, which, uh, you know, it's just, they've surrounded this show with uh, you know, any number of other uh, properties, including there's even a talk show about the show called Talking Dead, um, that, uh, that, that means that people can engage with a show in any number of different ways. And, uh, and, and so this is something that I think is, um, uh, is, is really critical. But um, there's a difference there, which is you're not really... Um, in a case like this, you're not really com, um, bringing two different groups of people together. You're, what you're really doing is, um, you're yes, you're connecting people with the show, but more importantly, I think, uh, you're connecting fans with each other. And that's become a really critical differentiating factor uh, in the success of um, certainly of entertainment properties in the last 10 years or so. And I think increasingly in the in the success of non-entertainment companies as well. Well, that speaks to the four levels of engagement that you talk about in this book with immersion. And you provide a graphic that goes along with these levels of engagement. And it looks like a funnel. And at the top, you have a larger audience that's less engaged with the bottom representing the smaller audience that's more engaged. Is that smaller, more engaged audience the most valuable within these levels of engagement, or is there a different sweet spot altogether? Well, I think they're, <laughs> I think they're both valuable. Of course, you want a lot of people to be, you know, watching your TV show or whatever, and the more the better. Um, but, uh, but the, uh, you know, the the really committed fans. Uh, the ones who are, uh, you know, down at the bottom of the funnel in that uh, uh, in that diagram, uh, those those are incredibly important because they create excitement that brings everybody else in, and uh, you know this this was really uh, you know this idea and even um, ultimately the diagram was inspired by this exchange that I, I had with James Cameron in 2006, which is one of the things that led to my writing The Art of Immersion, which came out in 2011. And uh, what happened, I was a writer for Wired Magazine at the time, and I wrote about stuff at the intersection of media and technology, which would literally be anywhere from, you know, Hollywood to cell phones. And uh, I was uh, I was in Montreal for, uh, uh, because Cameron was there, and he was there because he was um, on the set of the first movie, first feature film to be made using the um, stereoscopic 3D camera system that he'd invented. This was, again, 2006. It was just several years before Avatar. Of course, I asked him about Avatar, which at that point, um, everybody expected to be his next movie, but uh, it had not yet been greenlit. And he didn't want to talk about it. Uh, but what he did say was, um, you know, he described it as sort of an Edgar Rice Burroughs action adventure film that takes place on another planet. But then he went on to say this thing that really 
change my head entirely, which is that the best way to tell such a story from his point of view was sure for the for for you know the ordinary fan um, uh, they could watch the movie and that would be enough. But for the more committed fans, you wanted to have uh, you, you know you you wanted to create this kind of almost fractal form of storytelling where they could go deeper and deeper into the story and the pattern would still hold. And that's what a narrative platform really does. It allows you, excuse me, it allows you to go deeper, deeper into the story. Uh, and however deep you go, um, everything still makes sense. Um, and I think this is a, a, a really critical uh, thing to keep in mind is if you're telling any kind of story, um, it doesn't matter if, if it's, uh, you know, if you're creating an entertainment property or if it's a story of your company or your, your organization or whatever. Um, uh, people now, this, you know, this desire, this increasing desire for immersion means that people want to go deeper and deeper. And the ones who do want to go deeper and deeper are going to be your most valuable fans, customers, whatever. On that note, Frank, last question. How are the most compelling stories going to be told in the future? <laughs> I think that's really an open question. And uh, the, the short answer is I don't exactly know. Um, but uh, it, it is, um, uh, I mean, it's fascinating to me that the, um, you know, the, the most popular stories right now are ones, you know, despite everything I've just said, they're, they're basically, you know, broadcast television. It's just not on broadcast TV anymore. It's on Netflix or HBO or whatever. These are stories that, uh, you know, stories that have a, a very direct um, point of view that, that are very tightly controlled by the author. And the author has something to say and, uh, and knows what it is and how to say it. And that's what people respond to. So, uh, you know, in that sense, I don't think anything has changed. Um, what has changed is that people are, people at the same time expect a voice. Uh, you know, they expect to be heard. Um, and uh, in some cases, they expect to, uh, you know, even be able to influence um, where the story goes. Um, this is not the first time this, is, this has happened. It happened in the in the mid 19th century with authors like Charles Dickens, who, uh, you know, their, their, their novels were published not in novel form, they were first published in serial form. And, uh, you know, over a period of many months, which uh, meant that, um, you know, fans could and did um, write into the author and tell them, you know, what they thought of the story and where they thought it ought to go. And sometimes, you know, people like Dickens would actually um, uh, um, you know, pay heed to this, especially if the story wasn't working out all that well. So, uh, you know, I think that the idea that uh, the the idea that um, of stories as something that um, are, you know, on the one hand, they're kind of uh, predetermined. Um, you know, the author knows where they're going. But at the same time, you leave enough room for the audience to come in uh, and to, you know, sort of imaginatively take the take that world for themselves and, and make themselves part of it. And the idea that, uh, you know, you're able to do this, 
that you're able to do both of these things uh, is, uh, is, I think, quite important. In terms of the technology, you know, virtual reality, um, that sort of thing, I think we're still, all of that is very, very experimental. And we can, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see where it goes. It's interesting on virtual reality, people who follow technology closely are starting to think of this as something that's going to remain fairly niche even 10, 15, 20 years into the future. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly what I think. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, even I mean, the price point has been coming down, of course, but even now, um, the requirements, uh, uh, both technical and um, uh, and in terms of money, are still too high. And I just don't think that, you know, people are going to want to um, spend a great deal of time so completely immersed in something that they're cut off from the outside world. Uh, you know, it's fascinating to me that at the same time we have VR, uh, you know, which is completely, um, uh, you know, you're completely encased, obviously, in this headset, and you can't take in any other form of uh, of, of input except maybe um, you know smell or, or touch. The idea that um, that you are able to uh, um, the idea that you're able to do this is um, uh, is fascinating and it's kind of thrilling at first, and then. Uh, I think it sort of loses um, its appeal. It certainly loses its novelty. And um, uh, so, so at the same time that you have something like that, you have the rise of podcasting, the rise of audiobooks, um, where, uh, you know, obviously there's relatively little, um, you know, sensory um, uh, engagement that is, uh, that is provided. You know, you're listening to people talking, you're listening to voices, uh, and that's all. And, um, you know, I think that shows something. I think that demonstrates something about uh, uh, the appeal of imagination, uh, the fact that, you know, at some level, we don't really want every bit of information to be provided to us. Uh, we want to um, have our imagination sparked and engaged, and we want to... Um, be able to respond in that way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. He is Frank Rose. The new book is called The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. Frank, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Terrific. Thank you, Trey. Really glad to uh, be able to talk with you. Join me next time when I speak with filmmaker Nick Scown on his new film, Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.